Hello and welcome to Bad Gaze, a podcast all about evil and complicated queer people in history. My name's Hugh Lemmy, I'm a writer and author. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and a member of the board of the Schwules Museum in Berlin. For the last two weeks, we've been talking about um, Cressida Dick, the um, the former commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, who <laughs> oversaw some absolutely colossal um, uh, scandals, essentially, uh, in, in the police service. Uh, who are we talking about this week, Ben? Well, imagine, Hugh, you're a red-blooded American cinema-goer in 1975, and you decide to go down to the local movie theater to see the new Al Pacino flick, something about a bank robbery. You love Pacino. Who doesn't love Pacino? He was great in The Godfather Part 2 and Part 1. You're expecting to see a tough guy film, a sort of down-and-out bank robber in the tradition of the U.S. American bandit-loving. You buy a ticket, you sit down in your seat, but when the film ends... You're still there sitting in your seat, blinking in shock because Pacino just played a queer who robbed the bank to pay for his transgender girlfriend's affirming surgery, and the crowd cheered him on. You cheered him on, even as he he threatened to shoot people, even as he signed away his life insurance to make sure that if he died in jail, his girlfriend would still get her surgery. You cheered for that. The lights come up and you sit in stunned silence, and you're even more surprised when you find out that the film was based on a true story. The true story, or at least what claimed to be the true story, appeared in the September 22nd, 1972 issue of Life magazine at a time when stories about gay liberation were starting to make more frequent appearances, usually in starkly phobic terms, on the pages of the U.S.'s glossy newsweeklies. This one was called The Boys in the Bank, the title a wry allusion to the play and film The Boys in the Band that had made a huge splash on Broadway from 1968 to 1970 and spawned a feature film in 1970 directed by William Friedkin. That film, the red-blooded American cinema-goer, didn't go see. Five faggots screaming at each other in a New York City apartment was for special audiences only. But this film, Dog Day Afternoon, this story managed to sneak not only a sympathetic gay but also a sympathetic trans character and storyline in front of U.S. American audiences only five years after the Stonewall Rebellion. It did so based on a story, the truth of which has been questioned from the beginning, one which potentially misrepresented the identities and the motives of every single person involved. What we can be sure of is that John Wadowich, the character Pacino played in Dog Day Afternoon, robbed a bank in August of 1972 after some time spent in the New York City gay liberation movement and that at the time he was in a relationship with, a relationship they considered a marriage, though it was not state-sanctioned, Elizabeth Eden, a transgender woman. We know that he identified as bisexual. We know that Eden eventually had her gender-confirming surgery, paid for in part by profits from the film, but also that she sued the film for misrepresenting her name, story, and image, and for pretending that she was a gay man. We know that Wadowich angrily rejected parts of the film's narrative, especially the ones that called him and Eden gay. We know that American audiences, at least some of them, rooted for gay and trans characters on screen in 1975, even as those characters robbed banks and shot at cops. And so we know that we can look at John Wadowich, Elizabeth Eden, and the rest of the phenomenon that was Dog Day Afternoon as a lens through which to imagine 1970s U.S. American attitudes to gay and trans people at the beginning of the gay and trans liberation movements. Before we go any further, I want to say that um, this is an episode that contains descriptions of and language about trans people that is ranges from language that we would not use today to language that is extremely othering and uh, not gender affirming and violent. Um, 
I have made the decision to never use Elizabeth Eden's dead name in this episode. So even when it appears in quotes, I'm going to use, we're going to refer to Elizabeth Eden as Elizabeth Eden the entire time. Um, there are places where we're going to quoting other people refer to Elizabeth Eden using male pronouns. I think it's actually important to understand who and why and how thought about Elizabeth Eden as a man, uh, even as we obviously don't do that, but that's part of what the story is, I think, about. Um, and the other thing that we're going to talk about a bunch in this episode, um, just because it appears a lot in Eden's story, is um, self-harm related to um, trans, the oppression of trans people and a lack of access to affirming healthcare. Uh, and so if those are things that you don't want to hear described in some detail, uh, then this is probably not the episode for you. Great. Okay. So John Wadowicz was born the child of ethnic white immigrants, Polish and Italian, in the hardscrabble macho immigrant Brooklyn of the 1940s, and raised in the heyday of New York City's experiments in municipal social democracy. His mother, Terry, was Italian-American and his father was Polish, and they later remembered that he had an unremarkable childhood playing baseball on the streets of Brooklyn. In 1967, at the age of 21, he did what was expected of him and got engaged to a nice Catholic girl, Carmine Bufulco. And then he, like so many other men of his generation, was drafted and sent off to fight in Vietnam. He met Bufulco when they were both working at Chase Manhattan Bank, and he asked her on their first date to marry him. And she said that basically she thought he was crazy from the beginning, and they married despite her family's disapproval. The war in Vietnam was a great horror a horror primarily for the people of Vietnam and neighboring countries in Southeast Asia who found their struggles for independence from French colonialism converted into a battleground where U.S. commercial interests attempted to battle back communism and the forces of human liberation. Over its nearly 20-year time span, millions of tons of explosives were dropped, millions of Vietnamese civilians and hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese soldiers were killed. The war should primarily be remembered for its effect on Vietnam and Vietnamese people, but it also had a profound effect on U.S. American politics and public attitudes. Only 20 years after the Good War, World War II, in which the United States appeared to everyone to be on the uncomplicated side of right and good against the forces of pure evil, suddenly American citizens, and worse still, the children of the middle classes, were being sent to rot in jungles and shoot up villages half a world away. Who were the good guys and who were the bad? An anti-war movement broke out. Soldiers drafted to go, many had no choice but to comply, found themselves in horrifying, traumatic situations, and many also ended up committing war crimes and inflicting horrors on the Vietnamese population. For Wadowicz, the war started auspiciously. As he would remember in an interview for a documentary made about him in the mid-2000s, he had his first gay experience at boot camp before he was shipped off to Vietnam. Quote, I met a hillbilly by the name of Wilbur. One night I was dreaming that I was getting a blowjob, and instead it was the real thing, and Wilbur was blowing me. And just before I came, I woke up and I go, what are you doing? And he said, well, doesn't it feel good? And I go, yeah, it feels good. He said, well, I said, well, keep on going. And then we kept having this relationship because he blew great. He was like a summer breeze. That's our introduction to the uh, voice of John Wadowich. I'll be quoting liberally from interviews and, and written things that he wrote because um, he has, I think, such a unique character that comes through in the voice. He has this great, like, uh, New York, Brooklyn way of talking, uh, and was also just the most unbelievable ambisexual horn dog that you could ever possibly imagine. Yeah, I can already, in that voice, I can, I mean, that voice almost could be written by a screenwriter, though. That's kind of like you can almost hear Pacino saying that. Right. In a 2001 interview, Wadowicz remembered uh, that this was also his first time getting caught having gay sex. Quote, they came at an unexpected time and caught us carrying on. The company commander came down, 
And then after that, if we went into the shower, either we went into the shower first and they put a blanket up because we weren't allowed to see the other guys naked. Or after we came back from the day's work, we would be the last to go in. So Wilbur stopped getting down after that. And the reason he said that they weren't thrown out of the army is because at this time, a lot of straight men were pretending to be gay in order to not have to be sent to Vietnam. And so oh, right. okay. it was like, it, it, maybe it was assumed that they were just trying to get out of service and that this wasn't a real thing. Because this was prior to Don't Ask, Don't Tell. This is when homosexuality was explicitly... Exactly. And um, uh, many people forbidden. many people who didn't want to go to Vietnam successfully pretended to be gay in order to not go to Vietnam. And there was also a kind of gay liberation, like, tell them you're gay, come out, burn your draft card, and don't go to Vietnam thing going on at the same time. Um, but Wadawich's politics were not really gay liberation politics, although he would end up going... Uh, he would end up going uh, and, and doing some gay liberation stuff later. We'll talk about that. But in that same 2001 interview, he called himself a Goldwater Republican. Um, and he said that he actually supported the Vietnam War. Um, while stationed in Vietnam, the base where he was uh, located came under rocket fire. And he was one of the very, very few survivors of that. And while he never uh, spoke too much about what he had experienced in Vietnam or committed or perpetrated, his mother, Terry, would remember that before the war, he'd been normal. And after the war, th those experiences had changed him. She said, quote, when he was a kid, he was good. He was no trouble. The service screwed him all up. When he got back to New York City, he married Bafulco to her parents' vociferous uh, objections. He said, to disappoint my in-laws, I lived through the war. Um, and he fathered two children. <laughs> but then he started doing some things that were a little unusual for a Goldwater Republican in Italian Brooklyn. Among them was going to gay bars and joining the nascent gay liberation movement using the assumed name Little John Basso. Basso was the surname of his beloved Italian mother who, and this is a fabulous story, when he was in prison would smuggle him in sliced provolone in her bra. <laughs> you can't beat it, right? Yeah. I mean, if I was, if, I th yeah, if God forbid I was ever sent to prison, I think, I think, um, I was going to say, I think food food would be one of the big things I'd miss. But that's one of the things that, uh, I mean, again, another one of these screenwriter details, right? It would be like, if it was not an episode of The Sopranos, you'd say it was overwritten. Yeah, right. Um, he walked out finally on uh, Carmine the day of the moon landing, although they remained friends in a strange way we'll talk about later. And he started hanging out at meetings and attending events and protests, including uh, 1971 protests at the New York City Marriage License Bureau. Those were protests <laughs> about gay marriage? They were protests about gay marriage and some of the first. So on June wow. 4th, 1971, the Gay Activist Alliance, of which he was a part, walked into the bureau, set up coffee stations, brought in a wedding cake, and turned on the office intercom and said that, uh, you know, hey, in room 265, there's a wedding for gay people taking place. Uh, the action was led by Randy Wicker, who was a homophile and later a gay liberation activist, and he became famous for appearing as an openly gay man on WBII radio in New York City in the early 1960s, speaking about homosexuality, you know, from the homosexual perspective, quote unquote, and defending homosexuality against attacks from psychologists and preachers. In 1964, he became the first openly gay man, or one of the first openly gay men to appear on television talking about being gay. Uh, discussing homosexuality from the homosexual's perspective on a talk show called The Les, uh, the Les Crane Show. And Wicker fit into this interesting spot in the, in the gay movement uh, before Stonewall. He had been involved with the homophiles and had always been too radical for them. 
but he actually opposed the tactics of rioting at Stonewall and took a, what you might call a more right-wing turn. Um, and he helped found the Gay Activists Alliance, uh, which was founded in response to the multi-issue politics of the Gay Liberation Front, which popped up in New York and many other cities right after Stonewall. Right. So if the Gay Liberation Front had a politics which saw war opposition and alliance with black power as central to what it meant to have gay liberation politics, GAA was more focused on what we might now call gay rights. Um, so civil rights and other one issue gay issues. And gay marriage, for example. Gay marriage, for example. Um to complicate that story even more, though, uh, Wicker was actually roommates with Marsha P. Johnson from 1982 until her death in 1992. Oh, right. And he's actually still alive. He's 84 years old, and he's still active at protests in New York City. I mean, as with all these things, um, there's real complexities in the lived lives of people in these like quite often quite small communities. Um, the and, and personal relationships, which always complicate sort of easy readings of politics anyway, no? And oh my God, is that what this entire episode is going to end up being about? Yeah. It just gets more complicated from here. So unsurprisingly, around GAA, Wadowicz was known as a troublemaker with a high sex drive. He was the kind of guy who would sometimes bring his toddler son to meetings and call him, quote, the youngest member of the Gay Activists Alliance. Um, and sometimes the kind of guy who would almost be thrown out of the group for having sex with a stranger on a mattress in the middle of a dance floor at a GAA dance. <laughs> Go queen. Um, interestingly, he had a sort of love-hate activist friendship with Arthur Evans, who was at this time active in GAA in New York and would later move to San Francisco and write Witchcraft and the Gay Counterculture, which was a crucial text in what would become the evolving radical fairy movement. While later in life, Wadowicz was careful to describe himself as bisexual, at this time, as we've discussed on the show before, uh, the term gay was more flexible and accommodating than it is today, partially because fewer other words were common parlance. We're now going to talk about how Wadowicz met Elizabeth Eden, and in so doing, I'm going to give an extended quote. As I warned before, this quote includes language around gender and sexuality that we would not use now, and it includes using male pronouns for Eden and referring to Eden's body in a way that listeners sensitive to insensitive cis descriptions of trans people in their bodies might want to avoid. He also used Eden's dead name, which I've removed from the quote and replaced with her name, but I do want to read the quote because I think it opens up a really important conversation about how trans women related to gay and bi men and were understood by cis gay people in the early mm -hmm. 1970s. So here's Wadowicz from a 2001 interview. Well, I consider myself to be bisexual after the thing with Wilbur because I enjoyed it. The way I looked at it, I didn't consider myself to be homosexual. I considered myself to be bisexual, but I preferred women. But I would go to bed with a guy, especially if he was effeminate. And that's why when I met Elizabeth at a street fair in New York in June of 71, that was two years after I broke up with my wife, he was in drag. I met him at a bazaar in Little Italy, and you know he turned me on. I met him on June 6th, which happens to be D-Day, not only for Dog Day, but also the landing in Normandy. And I fell for him, because I'm one of those at-first-sight guys. Later on in the interview, uh, about Eden. Quote, I wanted his tits, and I wanted his dick. If I wanted a girl, I'd go with a girl, and if I wanted a guy, I'd go with a guy. In those days, I preferred effeminate gays or guys that acted like girls. So I told him, you know, why chop your thing off? You know, once you chop it off, you can't get it back. Because contrary to popular belief, a lot of what we call transvestites are butch in bed. A lot of people don't understand that. 
even though they wear the dress and the makeup, they still do a lot of the fucking. Later in that same interview, more. It, he's talking about his sexuality at that time versus now. I wasn't with that. If you wasn't the girl and I wasn't going to fuck you, forget it. But now I can go to bed with a guy and we don't have to have anal sex. We can hug and kiss and rub against each other and come, which to me is the highest point of homosexuality because it doesn't involve anal sex. So that's a totally homosexual thing to me. When two guys start kissing and rubbing and both coming. And then like with the one that calls himself my boyfriend now, he's the first guy that I went with where we'd rub pricks together and come. In the old days, you'd either blow me or I'd fuck you in the ass. There wasn't rubbing our dicks together because that's a homosexual thing. Okay. <laughs> so let's unpack this complex sexuality. Yeah. So the first thing to remember is that here we're looking at a description of a transgender person and of transgender identities by a cis man. And so the distinctions and the divisions that are being made in those quotes are coming from a cis perspective. In her book, Transgender History, The Roots of Today's Revolution, the trans historian Susan Stryker describes a 19th century in which, quote, the distinctions between what we now call transgender and what we now call gay and lesbian were not always as meaningful as they have since become. Homosexual desire and gender variance, she writes, were often closely associated. The early 1970s was the time when these distinctions were becoming more meaningful. Some degree of these distinctions being made more meaningful took place as trans people, trans women, began to assert that they were not simply gay men who were even more gay than gay men, but actually not men at all. Or not, not began to assert for the first time, but began to assert in a way that enters the historical record in this particular way en masse. There are, of course, examples from many different times. There have, of course, been lesbian trans women since before this time, but this is the, the sort of this particular distinction here. Um, for one example of that, we can look at Elizabeth Eden's repeated insistence to Wadowich, both in his reminiscences and in letters that are archived in the archives of the New York City LGBT Center, that she was a woman and not a gay man, and that she needed affirming medical care in order to live her life as who she was. But some of those distinctions being made more meaningful also took place as cis gay men asserted their difference from trans women that they understood as a kind of bad taste underclass who were harmful to the process project of securing rights from the state. Uh, this process of making distinction is more complicated, I think, than simply saying that gay men who presented in a more masculine way or began to engage in more masculine-oriented sexual subcultures were all angry transphobes. For an example of that, there's a memorable exchange in the 1970s leather magazine Drummer where a reader wrote in basically saying, why are all these faggots dressing up like women and ruining our movement? And Drummer said, no, leathermen and queens have more in common than you might think and demanded alliance with trans feminine people from its very masculine identifying readers. But alongside the development of those subcultures and the idea of a gender normative homosexual identity itself, um, and maybe the meaningful distinction is and was between those gay men who think of their masculinity as fundamentally a kind of drag and those who assert that it is somehow natural, many gay people and movements began to distance themselves from their trans and especially trans feminine sisters and siblings. If, as the trans historian Morgan M. Page has written, and by the way, everyone who listens to our show should check out her essential trans history podcast, which is called One from the Vaults, uh, Page has written about Stonewall, quote, it took a racially diverse group of street queens, butch drag kings, and gay men to rise up against a systemic persecution together. Then there was an immediate backlash to that alliance from respectability-seeking cis gay men. And this is not even to mention the fury that some political lesbians unleashed on trans lesbians who sought to join feminist and lesbian organizing spaces, 
Although, as Stryker and Andrea Longchu have noted, this hostility was not universal, which points to the degree to which anti-trans hostility was an active political choice made by some feminists, like Janice Raymond or Robin Morgan, and not by others, like Shulamith Firestone and several other trans activists who resigned from a San Francisco lesbian organization to protest its exclusion of a trans woman. So with all of this happening together, the early 1970s was, writes Stryker, quote, an inflection point in U.S. transgender political history. Trans people, when they transitioned from one gender to another, still routinely faced loss of family and friends, housing and employment discrimination, high levels of social stigma, and greater risks for experiencing violence. Long-standing anti-transgender prejudices meshed with new levels of medical attention to make pathologization the readiest path to healthcare services and a better quality of life. Progressive political movements, rather than critiquing the medical system that told transgender people they were sick, instead insisted that transgender people were politically regressive dupes of the patriarchal gender system, who at best deserved to have their consciousness raised. A perfect storm of hostility toward transgender issues was beginning to gather force, end quote. So between that perfect storm of hostility about to be unleashed by a combination of rising visibility for gay male and cis lesbian issues, and the reluctance of cis and gay lesbians and gay men to, to associate with trans women, and an earlier model of gay male identity that had a somewhat affectionate, if still phobic and fundamentally wrong-handed vision of trans women as a kind of gay man, in the middle of all of that, I think, we have John Wadowich's understanding of Elizabeth Eden, of who she was, and of how she moved through the world. Right. Is there, and I'm coming at this from an English perspective, which is, you know, the, the, the UK, in fact, the, the perspective that, that I know best uh, in terms of queer history, but is there a relationship there between this inversion model, which sees, um, which sees homosexual men as a third gender, which emerged in the 19th century, which persisted with this model of inversion and perversion of the, 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 the innate homosexual who is um in their sort of early conceptualization a woman's soul trapped in a man's body um in in the uk that was very much tied in with aspects of class um of is 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 there a similar link there in in america I think it's more complicated because in America, uh, I mean, the, the link with class. I think so just because you mentioned the, the invert versus the pervert, right? And the invert is upper class and the pervert is lower. In the U.S., the especially at this period in the early 1970s, um, one of the big objections to trans women um, by cis gay activists seeking respectability is not only that they are trans, but also that they are poor and also that they are, quote unquote, street queens. Um, and also that they are, you know, experiencing homelessness, that like the, all of the things that these people are going through because of their um, gender identity and sexuality and class status are wrapped up into kind of a kind of disqualifying package, right? That these people are not, these are not the respectable, nice gays and lesbians that we want to see um, before Stonewall in the sort of homophile movement, it's that, oh God, you know, they're not wearing suits. They're not in, they're not in, in fancy dresses. They're not gender conforming. After Stonewall, even the kind of gay liberation mode too often, they're understood as kind of pre-liberated still, right? Like, oh, yeah. um, trans women, it's, it's that trans women are kind of pre-liberated gay men, um, you know, or, or uh, yeah, 
So as, as Stryker says that this, like at best they need to have their consciousness raised and at worst. And so that's the, you know, that, that famous speech that Sylvia Rivera gives where she's yelling at, at gay liberation activists a few years after Stonewall about, you know, not doing anything about or caring about trans people or trans issues you know, it's important to remember she's not yelling at the like priest on wall homophile. She's yelling at the like gay liberation hippies who all understand them as exquisite leftists. Stand themselves rather right. as exquisite leftists, right? Because yeah, because there's because I mean there is quite a similarity there because in a in a sort of 19, as early as the nineteen thirties and forties in in the UK you get a similar kind of discourse emerging between the sort of professional um, homosexual man and the and the queens. Right, which is like seen, right. seen a similar sort of dynamic uh, of you're embarrassing us. This is not how we conceive our sexuality. But the other thing, of course, to note there, which is very prevalent in the UK, which I think is not taken into consideration a lot of those um, discourses of class in England, which is that that you know the the English in general tend to have a class essentialist position. Your class is sort of almost like something you're born with in your through your parents. But of course, if you if you are a, a queen in the sort of 1930s English sense, you know, sort of Quentin Crisp style, then you be, you could, your lived experience becomes a somewhat a working class experience because access to work and housing, et cetera, et cetera, becomes so much more difficult, you know? So Quentin Crisp is a good example of someone who comes from a very middle-class background, but spends most of his life living in poverty um, as a result of his uh, identity as the way he behaves. Um, his, right. exclusion, his exclusion from that. And interestingly, Quentin Crisp at the end of his life, and I'll say his because he used those pronouns as well, but towards the end of his life, uh, Quentin Crisp did intimate that actually he re- perhaps regarded himself as transgender. Yeah. But yeah obviously, that, that identity is completely not even an, an option really for him in, in 1930s um, England. So Waterwich and Elizabeth Eden met like all good Italians, at the Feast of San Gennaro on the streets of Little Italy. <laughs> and uh, Eden had lived in New York City since her birth. And actually, uh, in uh, 1971, she was living in the same place she'd lived for a couple of years, which was a rooming house in Greenwich Village, uh, also inhabited by future Warhol superstar Holly Woodlawn. And uh, both she and Holly apparently went down to Stonewall and participated in the, in the rebellion when that happened. So in early 1972, uh, Wadowich and Eden were married in an enormous mock Catholic ceremony with 300 guests, mailed invitations, a catered buffet, a photographer and a videographer, parents in attendance, and Eden wearing the most expensive wedding dress available in the shop. Well, he was divorced at this time? No. Okay. But this was a mock marriage. I mean, it was not, sure. no state institution at this time would marry, would, would have course, done this. Yeah. So it's a it's a... When I say a mock marriage, I don't mean the two didn't mean to marry one another, but I mean it was, yeah. Um, Footage of the wedding was actually featured as a kind of freak show segment on the CBS Evening News. Um, The Gay Activist Alliance refused to allow allow its space to be used, as did the newly founded gay church, Metropolitan Community Church, because they saw this as, quote, drag and a freak show and a distraction from, you know, real gay liberation activism. Uh, Wadawich said of the wedding, quote, weddings to me is a holy institution. Love is a holy institution. If I love someone, I want to marry that person. I want to make a commitment to that person. And in straight society, you do that by getting married. So I don't see why gays can't do that. 
So again, we have a very complicated person here who's located on the fault lines between some very different understandings of sexuality, between a view of homosexuality as situational and a view of it as a stable identity, between a view of trans people that patronizingly wrapped them into a gay frame and one that understood them as a different kind of person who maybe needed to be distanced from. And so this queer man, John Wadowich, had an understanding of his own sexuality that encompassed all of that and also sat on the fault line of tension between the respectability and desirability of homosexual marriage and also being an absolute horn dog, and also someone whose actions would cause the exact kind of gay activist trying to separate themselves from trans people to fight for so- sober civil rights, an enormous deal of headaches and horror. So Eden and Wadowich spent what was, according to accounts from both of them, a tumultuous several months together. While the film depicted them as an active couple at the time the robbery took place, according to Wadowich, they had remained friends, but were no longer romantic partners at the time. Eden struggled greatly with mental health issues related to her inability to access gender-confirming surgery, and Wadawich, for a time, seems to have pressured her to identify as a femme gay man and not to access the health care that she needed to stay alive and to be herself. She attempted suicide and was imprisoned in a psychiatric hospital where she received phobic care that understandably made her mental health situation even worse. Finally, Wadawich realized that she needed to access gender-confirming surgery, and he dropped his opposition and promised her that he would help her get the care that she needed. First, he tried to get the money through someone he would euphemistically refer to as a friend. Perhaps these were mafia connections, and we'll discuss potential mafia connections later in this episode. But when that person fell through, and Eden attempted suicide a second time, and was placed in a different psychiatric hospital, where she was forbidden from seeing Wadawich because the two had no documentation, attesting to the legal status of their relationship, He had to threaten guards to let him in, and when he saw Eden there, he promised her that she'd be out in 72 hours. It was August 1972, and John Wadowich was about to rob a bank. And by the way, he still had a friendly relationship with Carmine. The weekend before the robbery, he took her and the kids to see a double feature. So apparently, he was in a Greenwich Village gay bar when he overheard some gay Chase Manhattan Bank executives discussing that an armored truck would deliver $250,000 to a branch at 450 Avenue P in Gravesend, Brooklyn at 3.30 in the afternoon on August 22nd, 1972. He approached two friends in Petty Crooks, Bobby Westenberg, a cousin of Eden's, and a friend, Sal Natarile, who was 18 years old and wanted to use his share to bust his sisters out of foster care and provide them with a good home, and promised them each a $50,000 share if they helped out. And when I say he was always a horn dog, I mean he was always a horn dog. Here he is talking about the night before the robbery. Quote, We went to the Golden Nugget Motel the night before the robbery. While we were in there, I grabbed a hold of Bobby Westenberg and I wanted to fuck him because he used to dress up as a girl with a dress, right? And he goes, what are you talking about? I said, I want to fuck you. Well, don't, I don't want you fucking me. I said, I've given you $50,000, right? You're telling me I'm not going to get a fuck out of it? You're out of your fucking mind because I'm getting a fuck out of this. So then I fucked him. And then Sal came over and he wanted to fuck Bobby. Bobby tells him no. So they start getting into a fight. So I come out of the shower. I say, hey, what are you two bitches arguing about? What is it with you, Bobby? We could all die tomorrow. Let's die happy. <laughs> Sorry, it's horrible. Um, but there's, a, <laughs> there's, um, it's a farce. It's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's tragedy and farce at the same time. So on the day of the robbery, uh, the bank manager, Robert Barrett, was sitting at his desk and saw an 18-year-old kid walk up to him and sat, who sat down at his desk and said, freeze, this is a holdup. I'm not alone. Actually, um, in addition to that, he said, this is an offer you can't refuse. 
because they uh, all three robbers had gone to a showing of The Godfather, quote, for inspiration. Amaterawa. Extremely. And so uh, he held a gun to Barrett's head while Wadowich, who that Life magazine article preternaturally said, quote, had the broken faced good looks of an Al Pacino, unquote, headed into the teller's area and began to fill his briefcase with almost $38,000 in cash and $175,000 in traveler's checks, which was less than they had expected, but still quite a lot. And they promised to not hurt anybody, to lock everyone in a vault and to call the cops when they left the bank. But then things started to go wrong. Another branch manager called Barrett, and he took the call at his desk, but managed in the call to send a cryptic message, not perceptible to the robbers, you know, to saying yes and no, that something bad was going on in the branch. And so the cops and the FBI descended on the sleepy street in Brooklyn that sweltering August afternoon. 200 armed officers under the control of FBI agent Richard Baker trapped everyone inside the building, and suddenly the bank employees became hostages. So Wadowich called reporters to make his demands. He wanted to talk to Elizabeth, he wanted the money for her surgery, and he wanted a plane to fly him and his colleagues to safety. He then started calling reporters, having long conversations. He talked about how he favored capital punishment, which was why he wanted them to help him get out of this, um, and he wanted the media to keep him safe and alive. In response, the FBI cut the phone lines and turned the air conditioning off, and so the temperature inside the bank began to rise. Elizabeth was brought from the psychiatric hospital to the bank uh, by guards who mocked her and misgendered her, and she was also mocked and misgendered by journalists who were suddenly seeking interviews with the sensational subject of the hour. Overwhelmed and in a mental health crisis, she refused to speak to Wadowich. I did this for you, he pleaded. Why are you afraid of me? In anger, he accidentally shot the floor and so hostages ducked to safety before realizing that it was a false alarm. Shirley Ball, a cashier at the bank, recalled to Life magazine, quote, If they had been my house guests on a Saturday night, it would have been hilarious, especially with John's antics, the way he hopped around all over the place, the way he talked. Uh, Barrett, the manager, later reported telling Wadowich, I'm supposed to hate you guys, but I'm having more laughs tonight than I've had in weeks. One police sergeant was trying to shoot Wadowich and called him a lousy cocksucker, and he replied, I'm not a lousy cocksucker, I'm a good cocksucker. <laughs> So after negotiations, pizzas were delivered for the robbers and the hostages, and the hostages began to beg the FBI to please give in to their demands and just let them out of the bank. Actually, uh, Shirley Ball had a chance to escape. Uh, she was allowed out to talk to the FBI and to talk to uh, journalists, and she was allowed to like briefly see and speak to her husband outside the bank, and Wadowich was supposed to be standing guard to shoot if, anything, if anyone tried anything, but he got distracted. Um, and she saw that he got distracted, but happily followed him back into the bank, she told Life magazine, if I'd walked off, I couldn't have lived with myself afterwards. Um, Wadowich offered the bank manager a chance to leave and go to the hospital, but he told him he was a diabetic, but he refused the chance to leave and stayed there with his employees. And actually a contingent of gay rights activists arrived from the village to occupy the streets around the bank and cheer the robbers on. So finally, at three o'clock in the morning, a complicated plan was made. The robbers would go to Kennedy Airport, they would drop one hostage at each safe step before finally boarding a chartered plane, releasing the final hostage, and flying with their stolen cash to a foreign country. A long black limousine arrived to take everyone to the airport, and the FBI was obviously watching to hope that Wadowich slipped up somehow, but he didn't. The operation was executed, so there was no opportunity to capture the robbers or shoot any of the robbers without harming the hostages. The limo was driven out onto the tarmac where they would wait for the plane. A hostage was released. 
and the men were then convinced to go into the airport terminal for hamburgers, and this was their mistake. <laughs> as they climbed out of the car, just as the chartered jet summoned by the FBI was arriving, they were tackled by agents, one of whom shot Sal Naturale in the chest, who immediately died, and Wadawich and Westenberg immediately surrendered and were captured alive. Oh, Christ. Now, this was immediately an enormous media event, both in the national media, including the life story we've been quoting from a bunch here, and also in local New York City media. The journalist Arthur Bell, who was a gay liberation activist who regularly wrote for the Village Voice about gay issues, and whose first piece for the Voice was a sympathetic account of the Stonewall Rebellion, wrote a long article a week after the robbery, arguing that the media had gotten the whole thing wrong. He knew Wadawich as Little John Basso through gay activism in bars, and he was actually one of the journalists who was summoned to the bank that hot night during the holdup to talk to Wadawich as part of the hostage negotiations. Through interviews with inmates and other sexual partners of Wadawich, he came to the conclusion that the holdup had actually been planned by the Gambino family, with guns being funneled to the robbers via the mafia-owned gay bars that were still among the only places where gay men could drink in Manhattan. The mafia was to take 50%, and the other half was to go to the robbers. Now, Bell presents this in the article, which we've linked to in the show notes, as a sort of disproving the theory that he did it to pay for Eden's surgery. But if the robbers were going to take 50%, it still coincides with the idea that some of the money was for Eden. Um, interestingly for us here, uh, Bell describes the Gay Activists Alliance actually having a debate at a meeting about whether or not the bank robbery should be embraced as part of the gay liberation movement, with some <laughs> saying yes, and some saying no, that it had been related to a mafia observation operation and was part of this kind of old school mafia controlled gay life they hated so much. Actually, the trans historian Zagria, who has a really fantastic uh, website that's a really incredible trans history resource. She has a three-part series uh, on the website about uh, Wadawich and Elizabeth Eden, and that's linked to in the show notes, and it's one of the main sources we've been using here. Um, she makes a series of fascinating arguments. She reveals, actually, that Mike Umbers, who's the Gambino associate who apparently planned the robbery, was the landlord of Star House, which was the house that street transvestite action revolutionaries, the revolutionary trans organizing group and safe house led by Sylvia Rivera, um, and he had actually evicted Starhouse after threatening violence. And this is why, she argues, Wadawich fell out of favor within GAA, because he was seen as siding with the mafia against trans people. Ah. So we already mentioned Morgan Page, but just uh, we're mentioning Star, so I want to mention she has a great three-part episode on Star, the history of Star, and we'll link to the first episode of that in the show notes so people can check it out. Um. So Wadowich in a 2001, in uh, 2001 interview said that he was very serious about getting uh, Eden her affirming surgery, saying either we're going to get him what he wants or we're dying. There ain't no in-between shit. That's what I told him. That's why we made history. And that's why they made a movie. And crime does pay because Gliz got the operation with profits from the film. It's just not the way I wanted to because I'm supposed to be in Europe enjoying everything. <laughs> so Eden was eventually released from psychiatric care. Uh, while in prison, this is true, Wadawich wrote a will and left his life insurance to Eden to pay for the affirming surgery. Money from the films being optioned, uh, which was funneled through Wadawich, paid for some but not all of Eden's gender-affirming surgery. The rest, if you'll believe it, was paid for by uh, John's ex-wife, Carmine, who had wow. become friends with Eden while they were both visiting John in prison. Fair play. 
Um, after her affirming surgery, Eden broke off communication with Wadowich, and he ended up attempting suicide before his sentencing. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison and began serving time at the Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary, where he was subject to sexual violence. And in a 2001 interview, he actually blamed the films portraying him as a gay man for that sexual violence. He said, quote, uh, and again, just we've already said he was subject to sexual violence. I'm about to read a quote that talks about sexual violence in prison in quite graphic terms. So please, if you don't want to hear that, that's what we're about to hear in John Wadowich's voice. Quote, of course, because when I first went to prison, I was raped three times because the prison mentality was, you know, here's the gay bank robber. And every prison I walked into, they thought I was the girl. Because you got to remember, the average age of guys in prison was like 39 or 40 years old. I was 27. So here comes Marilyn Monroe walking into prison. And then you're labeled as the gay bank robber. So they all know you want dick, right? So when I'm walking down the cafeteria line, they'd grab my ass. And I said, don't you grab my fucking ass. And they'd say, oh, wise bitch. And I said, don't call me a bitch. I'll knock your teeth out. So as I mentioned, Sidney LeMay optioned the story and based it on that Life magazine article, The Boys in the Bank and he swiftly got permission from major players to portray them. The exception was Elizabeth Eden, who ended up suing Warner Brothers for a million dollars for, quote, having been rendered sick, sore, and disabled in mind and body, unquote, by the actions of the filmmakers, and she argued they had, quote, subjected her and will continue to subject her further to embarrassment, notoriety, and further mental and physical distress and anguish, unquote. And this was based on violations of her right to privacy and depicting her as a gay man and not as a woman. Um, um, those are all pretty fair complaints. Those are all extremely fair complaints. Um, and that lawsuit is uh, in Elizabeth Eden's papers, which, as I mentioned, are archived at the New York City um, Gay and Lesbian Center archives. Um, that lawsuit was settled out of court. Uh, Zagria says that uh, Eden ended up receiving a $50,000 settlement and for a while was planning to open a nightclub called The Garden of Eden. <laughs> when the film was released, uh, writes the film historian Anthony Macias, or Macias, um, reception focused on how uh, direct and vivid the film was. It was designed to look like a newsreel, and it was praised by critics, including the gay critic Richard Dyer, for its quote-unquote naturalism. Although, as Zagria points out, it was not the first film with a sympathetic gay protagonist. That was Victim, starring Dirk Bogart in 1961. It was one of the first, and it was a film which, as Macias argues, quote, gives awkward voice to the plight of prisoners and working-class people, unquote, and depicts the robbery, quote, less as a crime than as the last-ditch effort by disenfranchised citizens. The real news, he writes, is that both Sonny, the character based on Wadowich, and Leon, the character based on Eden, express no guilt about their sexual orientations. It remains significant because the main character is unashamedly bisexual, and the supporting character is unapologetically transgender. Despite this, many critics at the New York Times wrote phobic reviews discussing the, uh, quote, insanity of the characters, Vincent Canby called the sexuality and gender identities in the film, quote, quite demented, unquote, in the New York Times. Uh, so Macias argues convincingly that Dog Day Afternoon played what he calls a central role in the transition from second-class citizenship to the acceptance of gay civil rights. But once again, and especially in combination with Eden's lawsuit, we can see the limits of these rights and of these narratives. Who got rights? Who was more accepted and who was less? Who was paid for their story? Who got to access equality and who did not? Eden, for example, was apparently evicted by her landlord when the film came out. Okay. Yeah. Wadowich was eventually released in 1979 after his sentence was reduced by his new lawyer, uh, who was also his prison boyfriend, who was also an Irish Jehovah's Witness named George. 
and he lived until 2006 in Brooklyn, working itinerant jobs and surviving on welfare, despite the fact that he had a share of the profits of the film. Most of his share was taken by the State Crime Victims Fund. He would eventually marry another trans woman uh, who was beaten to death on the streets of Greenwich Village in the 1990s and a reminder of the environment of extreme violence um, against transgender people and especially working class transgender women of color that persists until this day. He was eventually rediscovered by artists and filmmakers in the early 2000s. Pierre Huyg did a video piece called The Third Memory in 2000 that combined interviews with Wadowicz with footage from the Lumet film. And a documentary in 2013 was released in 2013 and called The Dog by Alison Berg and Frank Caradron. And we've quoted here from some of those interviews. In 2006, John Wadowicz died of cancer. I want to close this episode by reading uh, excerpts, long excerpts from a remarkable essay written by Wadowicz from jail in 1975. It was submitted to and rejected by the New York Times as a response essay to Vincent Canby's review. It was eventually published in the Gay Liberation Journal, Gay Sunshine. Here we go. Quote, This is the first newspaper article I have ever written, but it is necessary so you the people can know the truth. On April 23, 1973, I was sentenced to serve 20 years for armed bank robbery, even though I made a deal and pleaded guilty. The powers that be did not keep their part of a deal, even though I am a first offender. A movie entitled Dog Day Afternoon, starring Al Pacino of The Godfather, was made by Warner Brothers and based on the events of August 22nd and 23rd of 1972, for which I am now serving time. Exploitation is a dirty word, but I have been exploited as well as my family and friends. I have had other problems with the movie, and I even had to launch a letter-writing campaign after the associate warden and the warden in here both refused to let my movie in here after Warner Brothers had agreed to send it free of charge for all of us to see. I can report now that the outside pressure from both the gay and straight newspapers was enough to make the officials here relent, and on Friday night, October 3rd, 1975, and also on Sunday afternoon, October 5th, 1975, we here finally were able to see the movie. It was a very moving experience. The movie Dog Day Afternoon contains everything from laughter, tears, love, hate, devotion, and religion to hope, drama, and thrills. The reason I call it a question mark is because it leaves so many out, so much out, and so many unanswered questions. What you are about to read are my own personal comments and feelings, even though they may result in the movie losing money. They must be made. The main reason I did what I did on October 22nd to 23rd, 1972, is never explained in the movie, and instead you, the viewer, are left with many questions. I did what a man has to do in order to save the life of someone I loved a great deal. He was gay. He wanted to be a woman through the process of a sex change operation, and thus was labeled by doctors as a gender identity problem. He felt he was a woman trapped in a man's body. This caused him untold pain and problems, which accounted for his many suicide attempts. We were married in Greenwich Village on December 4th, 1971, in a Roman Catholic ceremony. We had our ups and downs as most couples do, and I tried my best to get him the money he needed for his operation he so badly needed. I was unable to obtain the funds, and so he attempted suicide while I was out of the house. He was declared mentally sick and sent to the psychiatric ward of Kings County Hospital in Brooklyn, New York. I went to see him and I tried to obtain his release, but was told he would not be released and he would stay there for a long time until he was cured. So on October 22nd, 1972, along with two others, I began what I felt was necessary to save the life of someone I truly and deeply loved. No monetary value can be placed on a human life, and as it says in the Bible, no greater love hath a man than to lie down his life for another. Elizabeth Eden, uh, 
ended up uh, not totally cutting off contact with Wadowich. The two stayed in touch um, via letters and uh, actually appeared together on an episode of Vito Russo's uh, film criticism show on New York City Public Access Television. But that ended up being the end of their friendship because Wadowich wouldn't stop referring to her using her dead name and male pronouns. Um, And she ended up dying in 1987 of AIDS-related illness. Thanks so much to all our listeners, especially those who have shared and reviewed the show over the years. It really helps. And a special thank you to all our Patreon subscribers who really help keep the show on the road and allow us to keep making Bad Gays. If you want to help support the show, head on over to badgazepod.com. And in return, there's a whole bunch of great rewards, including books and T-shirts. Speaking of books, uh, our book, Bad Gays, A Homosexual History, is now available for pre-order from Verso Books and will be published in June of 2022. The book profiles 14 insidious inverts all the way from the Emperor Hadrian to the Dutch far-right politician Pim Fortown and uh, basically presents a long extended argument for why homosexuality didn't work and what we might want to try to do instead. Um, Now, every episode we're going to uh, talk about a different little sort of did-you-know fact from the book. And so today's is... Did you know that one Victorian doctor thought he could spot a homosexual because they had longer penises stretched out by traction during anal sex? (laughs) Oh my god. I'm prepared some excuses. For the full story, pre-order Bad Gays, A Homosexual History from Verso Books, available now at badgayspod.com slash book. Well, thanks, Ben, for a fascinating, uh, complicated, times troubling story about a fascinated fascinating complicated and troubling man um there are a few things i'd like to ask you about first of which is you rightly in my opinion uh, uh used uh refused to use elizabeth Eden's dead name uh but you but in the quotes and you change on the quotes but you chose to um retain male pronouns when Watchfits uses pronouns pronouns why what what what's your thinking behind that yeah um i this that was one of the that was the biggest um, and most complicated decision about how to tell the story that I made, and I spent the most time thinking about it. I'll explain why I came down where I came down, um, and as always on this show, people can agree with it or disagree with it. Um, the reason why I decided to uh, change the name is, I think, should be obvious to everyone. This is someone who whose whole experience as being part of this story. Um, was to be repeatedly traumatized and brutalized in front of an enormous media audience um, and to be like just repeatedly misgendered and traumatized and brutalized because of her status as a transgender woman. And so the idea of letting her dead name pass through my lips or into the ears of the audience here, or letting anyone listening to this think about her as um, a gay man or as her dead name, which is still how a lot of things that write about this, like talk about it. They'll say like his gay transgender quote unquote wife or something like that. Like, like it's, it's still, it still really isn't in sort of common parlance in the way that this is sometimes talked about. Um, and it certainly is not something that I think is dealt with particularly well in the film, despite what that one, what that one article, um, alleges. Um, now the reason why I didn't change the pronouns in the quotes is because I think like part of what makes John Waterwich a bad gay to me is the fact that he 
was seemingly somewhat abusive towards towards Eden and also continued to deadname her and use male pronouns for the rest of her life. And I think to kind of open up the ways in which Wadowich and his actions and his identity and his sexual sexuality exist, as I said, on this kind of fault line of emerging gay identities and uh, the sort of emerging trans identities and all of these things kind of taking place at the same time, I think it's important to like understand in a, on a kind of visceral level, the degree to which he thought that she was a man um, and the degree to which that was just part of his thinking and his worldview. And I think one of the worst things about him is that. Um, so I did that because it seems essential to conveying why he thought of her that way. Um, and the hope was, or the idea was that mentioning it happening in all of those quotes and having the narratorial voice of the episode use the appropriate she, her pronouns and Elizabeth Eden's appropriate name would be enough to continue to remind listeners and convey to listeners the truth of who she was um, and how we stand on the very important issue of the self-determination, um, gender self-determination of trans people. Um, so that's the choice that we made, but I also understand how you could make different choices. Right. Yeah. That's... So please, please understand, by the way, the listeners should understand that I would say 80% of the time that I mention um, Elizabeth, I, I attempted to do first name to first name and full name to first uh, full name to full name. Uh, but about 80 to 90% of the time that Elizabeth Eden's name is mentioned in those extended block quotes from John Wadowich, um, what's there is her dead name. Um, and there were also some places where I just sort of reconstructed sentences so that the name was left out, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's part of the violence committed against against Elizabeth is the rep is this representation of it, which is entirely out of her hands her entire life. And the most important thing, I guess, the thing that has made made both of them, uh, you know, remembered by history is is this film, right? Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah. Um, I guess what was striking is is sort of the way. You, you know, you mentioned that it's that in terms of the representation of, um, in terms of representation of John, it's maybe the first first time in like a major mainstream Hollywood film, as it were, that uh, that like a bisexual man uh, and other gay people in general, as we'd use that term in those in those days, are represented as something other than maybe like a pitiful character or or someone for whom. You know, it's a representation that comes out of this old school that, that, that's separate from this old school Hayes Code representation, where you can represent, for example, homosexuals, but they always have to come to a sticky end, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, yeah. But why did it take so long? Or could you talk about maybe how that contrasts with the representation of trans women in those films? Because really, sure. the, the representation of trans women as uh, as pitiful or as somehow um, <laughs> Uh, what's the word? Fooling people, you know, as, as, as engaging in a deceit, et cetera, et cetera, continues right. up to the pres present day, essentially. I, I think I would talk about two things. One, first, I want to talk about representation, and then I want to talk about actual how they were materially treated by the production, because I think that's also really an important part of the story. And that sometimes gets lost in conversations that are only about representation. So first, talk about representation. Um, I think the film thought that it was depicting Elizabeth Eden in a sympathetic way. Uh, it wasn't, but I think it thought that it was. 
apparently the the cis male actor who played Eden in the movie uh, remembered uh, that he, you know he he said that when he went into to read for the part he was doing what he thought was a kind of stereotypical drag queen thing and Lumet kept toning it down and and trying to make the portrayal more sort of naturalistic and real so it seems like yeah. that was actually part like from the filmmakers perspective they thought that they were that they were doing this but still they were taking they were cis people who knew nothing about trans people or trans issues making a film about a trans woman and depicting her as a like cis gay men cis gay man who is a little nuts um the second part then i think is the material piece which is so um the reason that there was money available at all uh, to Wadowich from the film is because he actually sued for 12 million um, after the film came out uh, on behalf of his wife, uh, because his wife got uh, $50 for doing a tape interview um, and then really hated the way she was represented in the film and also felt like his ex-wife, uh, Carmine, I mean, um, that she was also um, not uh, particularly well represented in the film and that, and that this was also an invasion of her privacy. Now they got, um, after lawyer's fees, $40,000, um, which were then paid out to Carmen. And then some of that money went to, um, went to fund, uh, Elizabeth Eden's gender affirming surgery. So what which gets 40,000 after legal fees, um, Eden gets, um, 25 to 50,000, according to Zagria, before legal fees for her lawsuit, alleging the same violations of privacy, right? So even in the, even in the, in the legal battles after the film, you see that Wadowich is, Wadowich ends up getting more somehow, mm -hmm. or the cis people end up getting more for their stories. Um, and now in this, it, some of that money then did end up being funneled to Eden, but, but still like, it's not, it, like in no way is that kind of a fair, uh, a fair funds breakdown. It seems like the cis people probably got at least twice what the um what the what the trans person got in terms of how the how their um how their kind of story um was uh how how they were compensated for for having their story told publicly in this way um and it seems like the filmmakers you know the filmmakers optioned the village voice article um but you know no one particularly thought that these people like who gets privacy rights like who is a bourgeois citizen is always a contested mm -hmm. question and it doesn't seem like anyone involved and when anyone at warner brothers particularly thought that any of these people were like you know actual human people who had privacy rights and who you needed to actually like work with and talk to in order to in order to um depict them on film in this way where okay the names are changed but it's after this big media event and it's so obviously them and it perpetuates the same conversation yeah. and everything in the film, I mean, the, not everything in the film is true, but the, you know, the film plays out in large part, the way that the, the way that the day played out certainly in enough part to make people assume that the film was just true. And the film claims to be true. Like at the end of the film, it says um, using the names of the characters, but it like says where all the, where all of them are like so-and-so is in penitentiary and so-and-so is raising the kids in Brooklyn and so-and-so has had her, gender affirming surgery, not using those terms, not using those words, um, and is now, you know, living somewhere. So it's like, it, that was all still, yeah. yeah. And, and the, the difference in, in how they were actually compensated, um, is I think also really important in addition to the representational, uh, difference. And again, I mean, perhaps part of the difference comes from, um, I mean, so it's a New York film, uh, not a Hollywood film in terms of the production. Um, but you know, no one by 1972 uh, working in a creative industry didn't know at least one gay man. Um, 
or maybe not no one, but certainly that was a that was an identity and a subjectivity that was quite present. Um, and trans women, just because of employment discrimination um, and and uh, the resultant difference in class status, were just not in those rooms and not in those conversations. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the idea that you would have um, a gay man on a film set, uh, if you're you know a kind of progressive-ish straight person like Sidney Lumet working on a set in the in the 1970s, that's something that you're probably you probably have some degree of comfort with. And so you think like you have someone to base the portrayal off of, and you have some way of thinking about it, some frame of reference. Um, And because of transphobia and because of the real differences in class status that were and continue to be imposed on many trans women, especially trans women of color, because of their lack of access to certain kinds of employment uh, during and after transition, um, that really that was really not the case. And I think, I mean, until very recently and still in many places remains really not the case uh, for a lot of people making film. Like the, the, this question of who's in the room um, is also a material question. Um, and uh, it's one that I think really influences representation uh, kind of back and forth. Right, yeah. Actually, it's something that's really discussed in that film. I don't know if you've seen it on Netflix, um, Disclosure, which is kind of about the representation of trans people in yeah. Uh, in film. That's a that's a really important place to look for. I mean, that's where a lot of my thinking on this stuff came from. Yeah, there's also, I haven't had a chance to see it yet, um, but there is a new film that premiered at Sundance, which is a kind of uh, combination creative documentary called Framing Agnes. Um, many people that we've mentioned on the show before, including Morgan Page, including the trans historian Jules Kilpeterson, um, were involved in... Um, making it uh, in various uh, ways. And it's basically a, it's a sort of mock, as I understand it, a a mock talk show format um, based on case files from a 1950s gender clinic. Um, And so it kind of uh, goes into, as I've heard uh, a chance, uh, the sort of um, ruptures in and distinctions between like, like how media scandals and, trans subjectivities were related to one another and kind of evolved in conversation and the, the effects of that. Um, and every review I've seen of this um, from people I trust uh, have said that it's just an extraordinary, extraordinary film. So I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Um, and I believe it's getting a, a broader release uh, later this year. What was, was there a response to the film from the, either the gay activist Alliance or gay liberation front or from gay, gay groups in general? Like, cause, cause, it's interesting you mentioned um, Boys in the Band, which sort of started that decade as a, a very, um, in many, many ways, and it's an interesting film, but a very stereotypical representation of um, of gay men. And then uh, ending the, the decade as well by the other Friedkin film, um, Cruising, which also, I think Cruising got a, a huge backlash from the gay community for its representations of gay men within this sort of storyline of a serial killer in leather bars. Um, was was there a gay gay organization response to this, or because it was sort of featuring this sort of trans narrative, was that skipped over? Well, some liked it and some didn't. I mean, I think the more radical elements there weren't, there weren't, there weren't protests and stuff. No, but I think some of the some of the uh, uh, more conservative uh, gay activists we've been talking about were really horrified that this story was being like promoted and continued to be continued to be told. Um, actually, the film it's in addition to, to all the other stuff we talked about, the film actually has a scene in it where activists, gay liberation activists on the street shout, 
out of the closets into the streets, which was an actual gay liberation chant from that time. So it's maybe one of the first filmic dis- filmic depictions of a gay liberation protest. Um, so it's a, it's a sort of Ouroboros of questions of representation and yeah, identity right. and the material problems that, that relate to all of that. And on that front, like, I think you did a very interesting job of describing like the really problematic way in which, um, John conceived of and related to, to Eden and the, the sort of disrespect and, and trauma and harm that he caused in his, um, refusal to sort of talk to her, think, think of her as a, as a trans woman, to acknowledge her as a trans woman. Um, and yet in recent years, I've seen a sort of occasionally sort of online, a sort of ironic, maybe semi-ironic sort of re-embracing of him as a figure, but, by some trans women as a sort of, you know, as with everything online as a, as a whole mess of meaning and double meaning and, um, an irony at play. But how, how, how would you, how would you sort of, uh, approach that, that legacy and how he's understood and represented within, um, the trans community and especially by trans women today? Yeah, I think, I mean, you do definitely sometimes see this kind of, uh, you know, ironic love for love for him. Um, a search on Twitter for his name uh, reveals, I think, the the kind of variety of attitudes that exist. Uh, some people kind of romanticize it uh, and talk about, you know, quote this romantic AF supportive AF honey uh, who uh, you know tried to uh, rob a bank to pay for to pay for gender affirming surgery. Um, some other uh, trans women uh, remember uh, um, focus more on the fact that he continued to dead name Elizabeth Eden, um, the fact that um, their relationship was uh, unhealthy or even potentially abusive, um, and so I think the the, the story is remembered uh, by trans people in their full complexity, and uh, there has kind of been a backlash to the over romanticization of the story. Um, as it was kind of first rediscovered in in the mid two thousands, I think this three part series by uh, by the trans historian Zagria um, that we'll cite in the show notes uh, does a really good job of balancing um, the extent to which Wadowich is occasionally a kind of likable character, despite even all of your better instincts, um, and the extent to which um, he. Uh, treated Eden in often really transphobic and violent and harmful ways. Um, And I think it gets into all of that. And uh, most importantly, I think often focuses on Eden as the agent of, um, of, uh, of her own identity um, of her own transition process and of her own response to, and sort of use of Wadawich, right? That, that Eden got what she needed from this person who maybe sometimes treated her well and sometimes didn't, uh, that Eden decided to uh, walk away from him and that it was on Eden's terms that their relationship broke down. Uh, And that's, I think, uh, a really good kind of way to approach it and a really good kind of summary of, of, of how to think about that, that question. Um, I certainly don't want to take uh, Wadawich away from any trans people who find him in some way, a character worth romanticizing, but also, especially as a cis male historian, I don't want to tell this story in a way that presents Wada, which is some kind of like pro trans hero when in fact, yeah, like a Robin Hood, like some kind of trans Robin Hood, when in fact there's a much, much more complicated thing going on here. And he's often behaving in ways that 
you know, by today's standards are not great. And also at the time standards are not great, right? Like they're, you know, no one forced him to, to treat people in this way. No one forced him to have this um, often quite, I mean, the way he talks about sex is really uncomfortable and borderlines on like he, do you understand what I mean there? Like, yeah, yeah. Like with the, with like the, the coercion that he's sort of showing to the other. Exactly. The coercion and, the, the and, and all of that. Like there's, there's so much going on there that, that you don't just want to say that this guy was a, was a kind of great forgotten hero. Right. Right. So on that note, I mean, I remain a, a good and loyal Brechtian and, and strongly believe that the crime of robbing a bank is nothing compared to the crime of forming a bank. Um, but bearing in mind these other things, um, good gay, bad gay, good not gay, bad not gay. Well, bisexual, period. Um, and I think complicated. Um, I think there's obviously ways in which this is a kind of fascinating guy in a story you can't put down. There are ways in which I think he's, uh, I, I think he's often like smeared by the more conservative gays for the wrong reasons. But I think also then when you think about the way that he actually treated Elizabeth Eden, misgendering her and the way that he, his relationship with sex and sexual violence, I think there's, there's certainly a lot of negative to, to balance out uh, any of the good. Yeah, that seems like a very fair summation of the, of the man's life. So if people are interested in learning more about him, um, do you have some uh, sources that you used to, to, Make this episode? Yeah, of course. Uh, so there's the film Dog Day Afternoon, uh, with all the caveats I've given. And there's a 2013 documentary about him called The Dog, uh, which you can watch if you want to see a lot of uh, interviews with him. It's worth just watching a little bit. You should you should see this guy talk and hear his voice. Um, there is an article by Anthony Macias in the journal Film and History called Gay Rights and the Reception of Dog Day Afternoon. There's a 1972 Arthur Bell, uh, Little John and the Mob Saga of a Heist article in the Village Voice. The Life Magazine article from September of 1972, The Boys in the Bank, and that's available uh, via Google Books. Uh, Reagan Reed has an interview in Vice with the directors who made that uh, the dog documentary, which has some great quotes in it. And there's also a BBC Magazine article about, about him um, at that time. Uh, there's a three-part, I mentioned her name already, but a three-part series on Wadawich and Eden by Zagria on her incredible trans history website, A Gender Variance Who's Who. It's called Liz Eden and Dog Day Afternoon, part one, two, and three. Um, and there, those are really great resources. And also the, that whole website is a really great resource for people who are interested in trans history, especially the parts of trans history that people say you can't find any sources about. Um, it's just a great it's that their whole website exists as a kind of rebuttal to that idea that there is no, that there are no sources and there's no way to talk about these things. Uh, there's an article in the Atlantic about the 1971 protest at the New York city marriage license bureau. There's uh, Susan Stryker's book, transgender history from 2008, which is really great. Um, I already mentioned Morgan page's podcast, one from the vaults, uh, but we've linked in the show notes to her episode on uh, street transvestite action revolutionaries. Um, and I'll also link to her article about, um, who like throwing the first brick at Stonewall and the kind of relationship between trans and gay movements there and what's actually important to think about in that story. I think it's a really important article. It's really influenced my thinking. Uh, and finally, the uh, Liz Eden papers, which are in the archive of the uh, LGBT Center in New York City. Great. Thanks very much. Well, if you'd like to know more about us, you can find us online at, uh, sorry, on Twitter at BadGazePod or online www.badgazepod.com. And you can find a link there to buy our new book, uh, pre-order, 
if you'd like. You can find me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy or my newsletter, hugh.substack.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Ben Writes Things. Until next week, our last episode of the season. Ah, see ya. Bye. Bye. Bad. 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 Bad.